Thanks for tuning in to Big Money in the 805. I'm Michael Anderson, and today we have Ron Bamier on the program. Ron owns a law firm here in Ventura. He's a regular contributor on CBS, CNN, and Fox News, and we've got a lot to talk about. We hope to make the next 30 minutes a very good investment of your time. Today's show is brought to you by GEICO Local Office, car and homeowner's insurance for the 805. You could save up to 15%. Call 805-487-7847. GEICO Local Office. Michael Anderson is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Maranatha Financial. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Maranatha's investments on this program. All opinions expressed by participants on this program are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Maranatha Financial or its affiliates. For more information, visit Maranatha.com. It's time for Big Money in the 805 with your host, Michael Anderson bringing you a feature interview, a local nonprofit spotlight, and some financial wisdom. Get local and relevant information for the 805. For show notes and more information, go to maranatha.com. And now here's your host, Michael Anderson. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. We have Ron Bamier, the owner of the law firm Bamier and Erickson. And how about this? Have you ever thought about doing some volunteering over the holidays? We have Sylvia from the Salvation Army as our nonprofit spotlight to share some information about bell ringing and the other projects that they'll be working on. This show will go on to our podcast directly after it airs. You can check out all of the Big Money in the 805 shows on your phone with the podcast app. You can listen while you take the dogs for a walk or listen while you're in the car. It's free and it's on demand. So go to your podcast app on your phone, search for Big Money in the 805 to subscribe. And now it's time for today's feature interview. We have Ron Bamier in the studio. He's the owner of the law firm Bamier & Erickson. They've been in business here in Ventura for over a decade now. They've tried over 250 cases. Ron has tried some of the most notorious criminal defense cases here in the county. And he's a regular contributor on CBS, CNN, and Fox National News. He has over 22 years experience. Ron grew up in the Bay Area. He's an avid Giants baseball fan and strong supporter of his alma mater, the USC Trojan. Ron is also involved in the community with the Rotary Club of Ventura and numerous youth sports programs. Ron, thanks for being on the program today. Thanks for having me, Michael. So let's start with this, Ron. You grew up in the Bay Area. You went to USC. At what point in your life did you decide you wanted to become a lawyer? Well, when I was finishing up at SC, uh, I was a business major. And so I did what everybody who's a senior in college does. You start looking for jobs. And the jobs available for someone with a BS degree, four years of college, were like your marketing jobs at like pharmaceutical companies or working at insurance companies and things of that nature. And frankly, nothing was exciting me. My girlfriend at the time thought I should be a lawyer, and uh, she applied to all these law schools for me. And she thought that that would be a good career for me to pursue. And so uh, she sent off these law school applications, some without my knowledge. And then I started getting acceptances in about uh, December, January of that year. And then I sat down with my dad, and we talked about it. And I said, I really don't want these dead-end career jobs. I think I'm going to go to law school. So I went to law school more to develop myself for future business than I did to be a lawyer. And it just kind of happened from there, and you end up with a career. 
Fascinating. So it was the, the girlfriend in college. Now, are you still in connection with the girlfriend? Oh, no, no. <laughs> uh, married a much different woman at a much later time. All right. Uh, let's talk about your father. I've heard you share some stories about him. I know he's an influential person in your life, and, and he was an entrepreneur himself. So can you tell us about your dad and his business? And Yeah. My dad grew up in Jerusalem, and he came from parents who were both Jewish and Muslim. And uh, he met my mom there, who was going to a Christian day school. And because of the wars that broke out there, because of the instability, he had this dream to come to America, like many people do. He had an uncle who had a connection at the University of Sacramento, Sac State now, who said, why don't you come here? And to get him there on a visa, they said he had a basketball scholarship. My dad's basketball game is not exactly like LeBron's, okay. uh, but he went to Sac State on a basketball scholarship, which he always reminds me about when he tries to tell me how to coach my boys in basketball. Don't forget I had a basketball scholarship. <laughs> right. Knows nothing about the sport, can't play it at all. And he came here, went to Sac State, got an MBA, started working for companies, always had a dream of starting his own business. He did that in the early 70s where he started a business that was taking American products and exporting them to the Middle East. And he made a great living doing that. Had a lot of successes and failures. He's not a man who fears risk too much. At least he didn't back then. Now he does. Now he fears even walking downstairs because of his walk. But back then, he had zero fear. And he made some savvy investments, some poor ones. And fortunately for my family, they most of the savvy ones paid off. The poor ones didn't hurt too much. That's wonderful. So I want to ask you about Ventura. So you land, you finished SC, you did law school, and you, you know, Ventura's home for your business, it's home for your family. How did you come to decide that Ventura is where you want to be? Well, oh, that's happenstance also. I'd like to say that my life was all planned out and I had this organized plan I never did. When I graduated law school, I had an opportunity to go work in the White House for uh, President George Bush Sr., 41, not 43. And so I went there. I worked for Bush, and then while I was there, and I was doing political work at the time, his chief of staff got in trouble for riding airplanes on the government's dime. So that was my direct boss. So when he got fired or resigned, whatever you want to call it, I had to leave the White House, and I went to Department of Justice, where I kind of developed my trial skills. And then I was supposed to go back to the White House after he beat that guy called Clinton from Arkansas, but he lost to Clinton, as we all know. And when he lost, I lost my job immediately, so I was a political appointee. And so what I did was I, the president was kind enough to write me letters recommending me, and I sent it to every Republican district attorney in California because I decided I wanted to try cases after my experience with justice. Michael Bradbury uh, got one of those letters. I saw him at a fundraising event in San Francisco, and I went up to him and I said, hey, did you get my letter? And he said, you're hired. And I thought he was BSing me at the time because... He didn't even know me, and I was like, did I just get hired? I'm not really sure. I remember my, my wife was, was my girlfriend at the time. I remember telling her, I'm not really sure if I have a job or I don't have a job. So I called his office uh, the next day, and they told me, yeah, uh, Mr. Bradbury gave us your number. You're supposed to start in two weeks. The only time prior to that I had been to Ventura was driving through to go to UCSB for Halloween when I was in college. <laughs> I had never, ever stopped in Ventura. I'd driven by it a bunch of times. And so I came to Ventura, and I started as a misdemeanor prosecutor in February of 93. I want to talk to you about your experience doing that. I also want to talk to you about your law firm that you've started, Bamier and Erickson. But before we jump into those stories, I'm interested in hearing about some of the stuff that you've done with uh, with mock trial. I know you volunteer a lot of your time supporting the team with uh, La Reina, and they were a national championship team. I think you're also helping out at Stanford with their mock trial team. So first of all, what what is mock trial? And tell us a little bit about that experience. 
Mock trial is uh, an activity that I got involved in when I was in law school, coaching a city team in Chicago. I loved doing that. It was fun. It was a teaching experience. It wasn't like it was here. It wasn't as competitive there. It was more like an educational program than it was a competition. And then when I got out to Ventura, the mock trial coach at Buena High School had quit. She had some obligations. She was a prosecutor. And Mr. Bradbury asked me if I would go fill in for her. Well, I went over there, and it was a competition, and I'm a competitive guy. And mock trial basically is a program where we teach kids about, it's mostly criminal cases in California. Matter of fact, it's always been criminal cases, about the criminal justice system, about how it works in terms of trials as both a defense and prosecutors. Kids play both sides. They play DAs. They play uh, defense attorneys. They play the witnesses' roles. And you compete in the competition. You get scored. It's subjective scoring by hopefully attorneys in the area. Sometimes non-attorneys get to score also. And they judge about how realistic your presentation was, how effective it was, and you get a score. The highest score wins. And at the end, they name a champion. So when I got started at Buena, they told me at the time, they had a nice principal there. Uh, I think his name was Johnson. It's been a long time. But he said, uh, we just want to participate and we want to teach. And I said, they're keeping score. You know, if they're going to keep a score, we're going to try to win. And he told me at the time, I remember, he says, well, we're not that competitive. And I said, well, maybe we should be. And so at Buena, the only difference at Buena than it was at Lorena is at Buena, I had the obligation to compete with as many kids as possible. Meaning, like, if you're in the NBA, for instance, this was my analogy at the time, and you're playing and you got Kobe on your team, you don't sit Kobe in the fourth quarter. Right. right? You right. play your best players, right. right? Yeah. Well, at Buena, the theory was that you can't play, you have to play everybody, and everybody should play the same, and nobody should play more, which is contrary to winning. But we did pretty well. We were always in the final four. We came in second a bunch of years. We just couldn't win the trophy. And then when my daughter went to Lorena, I stopped coaching at Buena thinking I may coach her at Lorena. And she kind of knew about mock trial because I coached Buena for 14 years at that point. And when she went to Lorena, they had a different philosophy. They want to win, and which is my philosophy. If they're going to keep score and they're giving out one trophy for first place, your goal should be to win that trophy. That's always been my theory. And so we started coaching over there. And Lorena just said, do what you want, just win. And so I worked with some fabulous uh, people at Lorena, other lawyers, two really dynamic women who were really into mock trial, and we were very, very competitive. Let's talk about this idea of winning a little bit, because society in a lot of ways has changed. And uh, some coaches, just like that, they coach maybe in an equitable manner, or, or in some ways you're not even able to really push your kids in youth sports and other things like that. It's, it's maybe... You know, you're not able to give them too much criticism and things like that. But some people say with the way our culture is changing, we're raising wimps. I know you have a different philosophy on coaching and you take a different approach to it. What is your approach? What is your feeling with, with that sentiment? Well, the thing is, like, when I coach a team, I'll give you an example. My Little League teams, I've coached Little League now here in Ventura for years. But, like, my philosophy is, like, most of the Little Leagues, we don't really care about regular season. Like, we don't keep standings and everybody gets in the playoffs. So I tell all the kids in the beginning of the year, look, this is how we're going to do it. Everybody's going to play exactly the same. And I literally almost get it to the inning and to the at-bat if everybody shows up equally. They'll play all about the same. And then I say, once the playoffs come, we get closer to the playoffs, then the best people will play the most. And there's a minimum playing rule, and we're going to use the minimum playing rule. And we're going to try to win the championship. And the thing I don't like sometimes is people think competition uh, means something bad or negative. I think competition is great. It's one of the most thrilling things you can do. The thing I love about mock trials, kids can compete in an activity that's very, it's not athletic, but it's, it has a lot of the similarities to athletics in terms of competition. I played sports growing up, college, everywhere. It's like that. It's, and those kids who never had a chance to really compete 
have a real competition where we're saying, am I better than you or are you better than me? And we're going to pick a winner and somebody's leaving here with a trophy. I think that's cool. Right. I think it's cool. I think it's cool to compete and win. I think it's cool to compete and lose. All right. And so people get this thing where like if you're competing and you're trying hard to win, that somehow that's a negative. Now, there's certain things I believe with, with coaching kids. You coach positively. And when you coach positively, you tell them what they did right. And then when you tell them what they did wrong, you explain it to them in a way they can understand. Now, I tell kids both. I say, hey, look, you did this really well. And my sons are a prime example who are out in your lobby. I tell them when they did well, and I go, this is what you're not doing well. you got to do this better. Or I say, no, that's not good. That's not good enough. I'll, we had a uh, soccer team one time, and we lost every game in the season, right? Every single game was I had to volunteer to coach because they had no coaches. And I got all the kids who signed up late, and we were just awful. And my kids aren't great soccer players, and we were just getting killed. Matter of fact, we had my little guy play. My, it was my big kids' team. We had my little guy play because it didn't really matter, and we were always short players. And so we're doing our end-of-the-team party. The kid comes up to me and goes, my mom said we were the best. And I said, you're all great kids, but we are not the best soccer team. That's not true. <laughs> we're not good at soccer. Now, right. we can be good at soccer, but you guys are all going to have to practice a heck of a lot to get good at soccer. But let's not pretend like we're good at something that we're not good at. And that's my philosophy. I just tell kid the truth. Like, when we – and baseball, my example, when we get to the end of the season, everybody knows who should be playing more. Everybody knows who should be mm -hmm. pitching, catching, mm -hmm. and playing the positions where the ball is going the most. And everybody knows who's going to be in the outfield. And the kids will tell you. Mm -hmm. Right. They know. Right. So who are you lying to? Yeah. Somebody said, well, you're hurting kids' self-esteem by doing it that way. And I said, no, no, no. The mistake we make as a society is we think self-esteem is when we tell people they're great. That's not how you create self-esteem because everybody can detect BS, even right. kids. The way you achieve self-esteem is by achieving things, by earning it, by practicing really hard than succeeding, by doing well at activities. That's how you get self-esteem. That's exactly how it works. You get self-esteem by succeeding at the level you should succeed at. And if you're not good at something, there's nothing wrong with not being good at something. We have this huge negative that if we, if we suck at something, somehow that's bad. No, it's okay to suck. It really is. It just then you find something you're good at. That's part of life. And we think we have to be um, mindful of that. And I'll tell like mock trial kids when, um, like I coach Stanford now, mock trial team. When I first got there, they were doing this thing. And they, my daughter was there and she was a younger member on the team. And they weren't letting me coach. You know, she wanted me to coach, but she didn't have the, I guess, the gravitas at the time to make the recommendation. And they did this thing where they did it very, like, uh, nonchalantly. They didn't practice really hard. They were hoping to qualify, things like that. So last year, there were two, there were law students who were coaching them, and they didn't really know what they were doing. And they left, and they asked me to coach. And it wasn't my daughter, but her teammates asked me to coach because I've been to all the competitions. And I said, well, if I'm going to coach, we have to do it my way 100%. Mm -hmm. You have to all agree that I get to make all the decisions. If I don't get to make all the decisions, I can't do it because it'll just be too frustrating for me. But I'll spend the time, I promise, and I'll promise we'll be better, but we have to agree that's what's going to happen. And you have to understand, I've seen every competition. Now, and they said, okay, we can do it. So the next day, I cut half the team. Hmm. And I explained to them, you're not going to win with 20 people on the team. You can't win that way. 20 people are not going to compete for Stanford. We've got to get to our best eight. So 10 of you are gone. Here are the 10 that aren't any good. I watched and I told them, I go, look, I think you're a great kid. You're obviously much smarter than me. I could never get in Stanford when I was a kid. I tried. I failed. I couldn't get in here. But you're not good at mock trial. Nothing wrong with that. Go find something else. But it ain't going to be this team. And then, which caused some, uh, let's say, uh, consternation at, at the school. Right. Uh, maybe a, an article or two in the Stanford paper. But then we won our regional. Then we won our uh, the bigger regional. We made it to the nationals. And we were competing to win the whole thing. Ended up finishing 8th or 10th. And it's fascinating, Ron. I mean, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I agree with it wholeheartedly. And it's funny, though, how that's not the norm. 
how I think more we've got to the other way of, uh, of giving just everyone more positive reinforcement on everything that they do. And it sometimes it is a disservice. But I don't I don't want to spend all the I think we could talk about this for hours. And I don't want to I don't want to spend too much more time on that. I want to jump into a few things about law and the legal system. And so let's pivot over to that. Talk to me about our current legal system with your experience and the things that you've seen. In what ways is our justice system working well? Well, first of all, I, I'm a, we have the best legal system in the world. I mean, just this UCLA story that came out the other day where they got caught in China and uh, they were looking at years in prison for a petty theft. And you read about the China legal system and you realize, wow, they have no chance. They're just going to get convicted. They're going to get what they're going to get. We have a much better legal system here. We have a chance. We have a chance to discuss the case with prosecutors. We have a chance to defend yourself. You have rights, rights that you don't have anyplace else in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I do appreciate that. Our system of justice, though, and we're kidding ourselves if we're, we don't talk about it, is that it favors people with money. It just does. The more resources you have, the better uh, justice you get. Just that's the way it works. It favors people who can uh, afford the better lawyers. It just does. And it favors people de- on depending on where you live and what community you live in. For instance, in Ventura, it's very hard if you're a Latino person living in a certain area of Oxnard to get the same look from a jury that you would if you're a white preppy kid from the hills of Ventura just is. And as a lawyer and defending people, you have to deal with those realities. It works for the most part. There are biases in every system. There are things in every system that don't work the way they should. And saying everything negative I could about the system, if I was going to have a problem, either criminally or civilly, I'd want to be in America. I was going to follow up with what ways are the just, is the justice system flawed or not working? I think you covered a few of those, but are there any more to add? The biggest flaws are bail system. Yeah. The bail system... I don't know how it got to be where it is, but it's, it's, it's on its face and unfair. It basically tells people if you have money, you can get out of jail. If you don't have money, you stay in jail. That's what our bail system says. Our bail system should be this. If you're dangerous to the public or going to flee, you stay in. If you're not and you can show me you're not, you come out. That's what it should be. It shouldn't be based on money. Mm-hmm. But it makes no sense to me that I can rep- represent the same two people, start with the same two crimes, and one can be out of jail because he has money to make the bail, and one has to stay in jail because he doesn't have the money. And why is that important? Because your odds are much better if you're out of custody. They mm-hmm. just are. Mm-hmm. They just are. The jury sees you differently. You act differently. It's just much better. It's easier to work with you as my client. I can see you more often. Going to visit clients at the jail is a pain. So the bail system on its face is completely unfair, and uh, there's no way to justify what we do. It really isn't. We literally base our bail on the, amount, on the charges you're charged with. I also want to ask you about this, uh, Ron. You have the unique experience of working for the DA, and now you defend clients against the DA sometimes. So what are the observations that you can share about working on both sides? I think both are noble professions. Uh, I loved my time as a prosecutor. It was a great time. You get a lot of a great experience. You work in a very dynamic office. You work with really good people. Uh, I love my experience as a defense attorney. I work in a great office. I have really interesting people to work with. I can help people. Uh, there are differences to the job. The problem sometimes some prosecutors have is they don't have a lot of worldly experience, and they see things very narrowly. Uh, when you go to the defense side, you, you really have to expand the way you look at the world, and people have different issues, and there are things that people experience that make them more susceptible to being charged with crimes, and you have to accept that and deal with it. Also, you also have to deal very honestly on both sides of what you're looking for. When I'm defending people, 
I have to honestly assess the case. Can we actually get a favorable verdict from a jury? And if we can't, what's the best outcome this person can achieve? And then you try to achieve that outcome. And sometimes a great outcome is, and of a recent case I had, he was looking at 33 years in state prison, and we managed to get him 13 years. And everybody goes, wow, he pled guilty to 13 years. I go, yeah, but that's a great outcome. Yeah, relative to the 33, relative for sure. 33, yeah. Well, so I've noticed the, the media covers a, a number of your cases, and they have in the past. Do you feel like they do a fair job of reporting the story, or is there a slant to the story, and sometimes they miss it? Well, it depends. I mean, I think the local media does the best they can now. I mean, the star is pretty much non-existent now. I mean, come on. We don't, I used to see him in the courthouse every day. Now you rarely see him. The only person I see in the courthouse every day is Alex Wilson. He'll be around with his microphone asking you questions, but nobody else, really. They'll cover the bigger cases. They really get a snapshot version of it, and they give a blurb. Here are the charges. Here are the maximum consequences they're facing. Here's the one thing the defense attorney says about it. On the civil cases, when they quote you, they want to know how much money you're suing for. So you're getting a very superficial look now. We used to have three court reporters here in Ventura County at three local papers. We have none now with the star occasionally covering things they read in the paper calling you. They're not there in the courthouse. They call you on the phone. So it's much different. So you don't really get a good look at our system of justice mm. in terms of local. You, you see, okay, some guy's charged with X crime and he pled not guilty and his lawyer says he didn't do it. That's what you get. And the DA says he's looking at 35 to life and maybe the death penalty. That's yeah. what you get. We're talking with Ron Bamier of Bamier and Erickson. Uh, just a couple closing questions before we finish up. Uh, one thing about the law system, you were talking about some of the biases with people that have a lot of money. Do you have some more examples you might share of, of, say, I've heard you mention before that sometimes men and women being tried for the same crimes might receive different verdicts, seemingly just because of their sex. But do you have other examples well, that you might the quickly case share? You're t- the case yeah. you're talking about is the Jane Loud case that we tried. And in that case, I tried a similar case with a man being the victim of a woman. And he received a voluntary manslaughter conviction. And with Jane's case, the jury held many things against her that are common in domestic violence cases. And they had trouble grasping the domestic violence aspect of it. And I thought that was unfair. Also, the way the cases were handled by the DA in terms of acknowledging early on that the case was only worth literally six years in state prison. However, when she was convicted, asking for the maximum term of 25 to life. I thought yeah. that's a little inconsistent to me also. As we close out, I know, you know, I wanted to kind of touch on this. Being a lawyer, I know it's a difficult job and students that want to go into that profession, you see them through mock trial. What advice do you give the aspiring law students? It's what I'd give to anybody who's aspiring for a career. You better make sure you enjoy it because there's a lot of jobs in law that people are miserable in. And if you want to sit in the back room and grind out research and write briefs all day and be responsible for billing a certain amount of hours, that's a tough way to go. So you better know what part of the law you want to be in, and you better make sure you enjoy it. And if you don't, you should go find something you do. The law degree gives you many options. It's not, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a lawyer. You can be a businessman, businesswoman. You can run something. You can do anything else. Uh, you can be a talk show host. But what I tell people always when you're looking at careers, you know, I've been fortunate. I've had a career I've really enjoyed, and it makes working a lot easier. Because any job you do to do it well, it's ours, man. It's a lot of hours. <laughs> Our guest uh, today is Ron Bamier with Bamier and Erickson. You can learn more and get connected online. You can go to their website, which is bamiererickson.com. Ron, thanks so much for being on today. Thank you, Michael, for having me. Now it's time for the Nonprofit Spotlight with your host, Michael Anderson, on Big Money in the 805. 
Nonprofit Spotlight. Here is a local group we want you to know about. Nonprofit Spotlight. Today's spotlight is brought to you by Era Energy, powered by safety, innovation, and community. We help keep California moving forward. Our guest today is Sylvia from the Salvation Army of Ventura. Sylvia, thank you for being on the program. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. So as our nonprofit spotlight, we like to highlight uh, what you guys are doing. Can you tell us about the Salvation Army and what you guys are up to? Okay, so the Salvation Army here in Ventura, we provide uh, street outreach. We provide the case management, housing, re-wrecking housing, uh, rental assistance. We also have the safe sleep program, life skill classes, health navigation, food pantry, and we are also have our church where we provide spiritual care for those individuals. Oh, you guys are doing a lot. And the website for the Salvation Army is ventura.salvationarmy.org. Um, let's talk about this, Sylvia. What are you guys doing over the holidays? I know you guys have a lot of programs that you typically run. Yes, we do. Over the holidays, as you all know, we already kicked off our cattle campaign. And the cattle campaign, we already start Monday. And it's the last day will be December the 23rd. And with the Carol campaign, all the funds that we get during the campaign, it goes to provide assistance in our programs here in Ventura. So and the- we're also going to have the ca- uh, Red Carol kickoff. It's a holiday gala, dinner, dancing, buffet, and dancing. And I encourage the community to enjoy us. It's going to be Saturday, December 9th. You'll be our Carol kickoff. Where's that going to be, Sylvia? It's going to be at the Pier Point Inn in Ventura. Okay, great. So December 9th at the Pier Point Inn, they have the Red Kettle Kickoff Gala. That sounds like fun. Now, how can the community get involved with some of the efforts that you're doing in the uh, kettle campaign, bell ringing? Uh, What's the best way for people to connect? The best way for people to connect with us, it is to call in us, going to our website, and we are looking for volunteers to help us with the bell ringing. And we are also looking for people to help us with another program that I didn't mention before. It's the Angel Tree program where we provide a toys and clothes for the low-income families for their kids. If people would like to adopt a child, or a family, and also bell ringing for us for a couple hours during this month will be great. And it is a great opportunity to reach out the community. So bell ringing at one of the locations or the Angel Tree program or adopting a child, those are all wonderful programs for the holidays for people to volunteer. Uh, you can learn more about the Salvation Army here in Ventura by going to their website. That is ventura.salvationarmy.org. Thank you so much, Sylvia. Thank you. Hi, this is Michael Anderson, Certified Financial Planner. I've dedicated the past 12 years to researching different investment ideas. There are no guarantees when investing, but with a little help, you can find the right approach. I have built AllocationLink.com specifically for you. AllocationLink.com is investment management made simple, smart, and low cost. AllocationLink.com can have your account set up in less than 10 minutes. You don't need to have a million dollars. You don't need to have $100,000. You can get started with as little as $250 today. The secret to investing is regular contributions and giving it time to grow. Please check out my website online. I think it will be a great resource for you. 
AllocationLink.com is investment management that is smart, low cost, and automatic. Please visit AllocationLink.com to learn more. Or you can leave me a message at 805-665-3767. Well, that does it for our show today. Thanks for tuning in to Big Money in the 805. All previous shows are also on Marinantha.com, M-A-R-A-N-A-N-T-H-A.com. Special thanks to the team at Salvation Army, along with Ron Bamier for coming into the studio today. I'm Michael Anderson, and our engineer is Tom Spence. If you have questions about the show or your financial matters, you can always contact me online at Marinantha.com, M-A-R-A-N-A-N-T-H-A.com, or leave me a message on my answering service, 805-665-3767. Have a great week. Join us again next time. Do you ever question if your investments are right for you? Do you own any annuities, retirement accounts, or have other money you want help with? Have you ever wondered what your advisor is making or how they get paid? Get a free second opinion. Talk with Michael Anderson, Certified Financial Planner. Call his answering service today, 805-665-3767. Leave a message and get a call back immediately. 805-665-3767 or visit him online, maranatha.com, M-A-R-A-N-A-N-T-H-A.com. Michael Anderson is local and fiduciary. No commissions, no gimmicks. Call and leave a message today, 805-665-3767.